Welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals and items mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of part one of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, Francisco Pancho Villa and the Mexican Revolution. And while we're at it, why don't you head on over to Amazon and pick up a copy of my novel, Is That Your Final Answer? Or even read it for free on Kindle Unlimited. Now let's get started with our story about Pancho Villa. In 1910, Mexican President Porfirio Diaz was re-elected to his seventh term as the political leader of the Mexican government. Diaz had served as president for 30 of the previous 34 years. So politically powerful that this entire time period is referred to historically as the Porfiriato. Although Mexico's economy experienced expansion and prosperity during Diaz's reign, much of the increased international trade, railroad construction, and economic infrastructure was financed with European and American capital and benefited foreign entities and individuals and a small group of Mexican elites to the detriment of most of the Mexican population, who barely survived in squalor and deprivation. By the election of 1910, Diaz was perceived so negatively that it appeared his more reform-minded opponent, Francisco Madero, might actually win the election. Diaz responded by tossing his opponent in jail, but Madero eventually escaped, precipitating a series of insurrections and internal Mexican political struggles that came to be known as the Mexican Revolution. In a country as politically convoluted as Mexico, this revolution was influenced by many prominent stakeholders and politically ambitious individuals, among them Francisco Pancho Villa. Like the history of Mexico itself, Villa's early life and biography is obscured or disputed. Much of the information about Pancho Villa came from his own self-serving autobiography or biased journalism and glorifying newsreels from the time period. What is generally accepted is that Villa was born Doroteo Arango to a sharecropper father and domestic mother on June 5, 1878, in San Juan del Rio, in the Mexican state of Durango. One version describes him as the product of an affair between the wealthy hacienda owner where he grew up and his mother, a maid for the same individual. One of five siblings, regardless of his genesis, his background was quite humble, and the family became even more impoverished when Villa's de facto father passed away. As a young boy, he scratched out money from various odd jobs, until again, under circumstances that are unclear, as a teenager, he was forced to flee his home after an incident involving a shooting. Whether this was an attempt to avenge the attempted rape of his sister or merely a violent outburst, 
The result was that even as a teenager, Doroteo Arango was forced to escape into the rugged Sierra Madre Mountains of Durango, often surviving as a lawless livestock thief, bandit, and criminal. Even he admits to killing on several occasions, usually various agents of local government intent on tracking him down. Finding it difficult, if not impossible, to survive on his own, Arango joined an armed gang of bandits that participated in more organized and lucrative criminal schemes in both Durango and the neighboring state of Chihuahua. Quickly, he accumulated 50,000 pesos, allegedly giving away much of this money to family and acquaintances, a habit that characterized him early on as a kind of Robin Hood figure. By now, his criminal background prompted him to change his name, possibly to honor a grandfather's surname, and suddenly he was Francisco Villa, Pancho, the typical nickname that went with Francisco. Again, how this Francisco Villa spent his late teens and early 20s is somewhat mysterious. Most likely, he alternated between periods of gainful employment, occasionally finding work as a butcher, a mason, and a miner. But, invariably, his criminal past caught up with him, and he would have to drop everything and run from the rurales, the federal police that represented the Diaz government in the backcountry, far away from the capital of Mexico City. Despite a frequently nomadic existence, Villa bought a house and put down roots in the Mexican state of Chihuahua. It is here that he made the transition from criminal to political activist. Part of that evolution derived from the power structure that dominated even in the northernmost state of Chihuahua. For years, much of the land and cattle of Chihuahua and most northern Mexican states were concentrated in the hands of a few families with ties to the federal government. In Chihuahua, the most powerful landowning entity was the Creole Terrazas family and its patriarch, Luis Terrazas. Terrazas oversaw ranches and haciendas that totaled over 7 million acres and almost three-quarters of a million cattle and sheep. His largest hacienda employed over 2,000 individuals. His mentality could be summed up in an anecdote related about a conversation he once had socially when he was asked if he was from Chihuahua. He responded, Yo soy Chihuahua. I am Chihuahua. In the last decade of the Porfiriato, Don Luis's son-in-law, Enrique Creel, served in various political positions, including governor of Chihuahua and ambassador to the United States. Since Pancho Villa spent much of his time rustling livestock in the Chihuahua region, he would have been quite aware of both the immense wealth and political power of this entity. Over time, continual harassment from the various legal entities of the government created in him both a great animosity and a desire for vengeance. Villa's background and identification with the poorest members of Mexico's lowest classes also added to his sense that he was an underdog intent on striking back at a corrupt and unjust government and society. Pancho Villa's first exposure to revolutionary politics occurred when he interacted with another prominent native of Chihuahua, Abraham Gonzalez. Gonzalez was an adherent of Francisco Madero, 
a wealthy but reform-minded politician who aimed to defeat Porfirio Diaz in the upcoming 1910 election. Gonzalez was affiliated with the official political entity organized for this purpose, known as the Anti-Reelectionist Party. In any endeavor involving Mexican politics, it was understood that violence and armed devotees were an unfortunate prerequisite. Gonzalez identified Pancho Villa as the type of individual who could recruit like-minded soldiers to this political cause. The man that Gonzalez supported, Madero, already concluded that the Diaz government could only be toppled by force and would use any means necessary to retain power. This belief proved prescient when Madero, conveying a populist message condemning government corruption and foreign and especially American ownership of Mexican infrastructure that resonated with much of the populace, was jailed in June of 1910. With tacit U.S. support from the Taft administration, Diaz also imprisoned thousands of Madero supporters. On June 21, 1910, the Mexican government conducted an election, and not only was Diaz declared the winner, allegedly Madero received only minor support, a development that instigated spontaneous anger among the Mexican people. Madero's family was able to post bond and secure his release from prison and a certain degree of supervised confinement, which the candidate eventually exploited in October of 1910 by escaping to San Antonio, Texas. Madero used his time in confinement to compose a, a document entitled The Plan of San Luis de Potosí. This edict rejected the election of 1910 declared Madero the provisional president of Mexico pending elections, called for armed resistance to the federal government, massive land reform involving the lower classes, and the release of all political prisoners. Madero even designated November 20, 1910, as the official date of the beginning of a popular revolution. Only days later, Pancho Villa was one of the first of the rebels to actually engage with federal troops when he and a small group of his former cattle-rustling associates ambushed a trainload of federales disembarking from a train in the Chihuahua town of San Andres, killing the commander of this unit and forcing the troops to retreat. This event served to embolden local resistance, and within days, hundreds of locals volunteered to join Villa's unit. Unfortunately, this enthusiasm did not develop outside of Chihuahua, and despite growing to a total of 1,500 men, the rebels were the sole focus of the Diaz government's attempt to stamp out the revolution. The president appointed Luis Terraza's son to replace the sitting governor of the state of Chihuahua to, at the very least, ensure that the Terraza Creole cartel would be heavily invested in opposing the nascent revolution. Diaz also sent 5,000 more federal soldiers in an attempt to utterly crush any military opposition. Villa was one of several individuals who mostly conducted hit-and-run raids against some of the federally reinforced towns in the region. Another Abraham Gonzalez recruit, Pascual Orozco, also quickly established himself as an effective leader of the increasingly stubborn revolt. Federal troops remained mostly garrisoned in the larger towns in the region, and Villa combined his recruits with Orozco, 
and the enthusiasm and collective hostility to the Diaz government began to produce positive results in early 1911. In February of 1911, Madero felt comfortable enough to return from the U.S., which was fortunate because the American government, based on its close ties to the Diaz regime, was intent on arresting Madero under obscure laws against leading military operations from American soil against foreign nations. The revolution against Diaz was also beginning to gather momentum around the country, a development that stretched the government's ability to respond. Typically, the federal military stepped up recruitment by employing what was known as the Leva, the forced impressment of peasants into the army. Officers frequently had to hold such recruits on trains at gunpoint, making for a not particularly enthusiastic fighting organization. By contrast, Pancho Villa was able to establish a personal connection with his men that earned their trust and respect. He was audacious in his strategic attacks, but not reckless. He made sure to personally interact with any new recruits, and much of his raids were on haciendas that could provide food, clothing, and most importantly, wages, which many of his lower-class soldiers had never even seen before. But he was also quite strict and did not hesitate to discipline harshly those who disobeyed orders. Villa also greatly respected Madero, who he believed was honest and idealistic despite his wealthy roots. In April of 1911, Madero decided that his army, led by Orozco and Villa, was now organized and powerful enough to attempt to capture the second largest city in the state of Chihuahua, Ciudad Juarez. The northward march of the rebel contingent was completely unopposed, an indication of the federal government's military weakness, but an impasse occurred when this force arrived at their destination. First, the Diaz government resolve was softened by an ever-increasing national instability, and there was a belief that Madero, who they considered one of their own, could be talked into an armistice if some concessions were made. Although rumors of a deal swirled in early May, any such agreement collapsed when Diaz's resignation was made unconditional. Subsequently, Madero hesitated, under the impression that U.S. troops just over the border in El Paso, Texas, might use an attack on Ciudad Juarez as an excuse to intercede. When Madero indicated that he might merely retreat without attacking the city, Orozco and Villa took action. They believed that a retreat would be demoralizing and that the city could be easily conquered. Behind Madero's back, they instigated an assault on the town's fortification, a provocation that quickly escalated into a full-scale battle. Orozco then informed Madero that a complete commitment would be successful, and the rebel leader, satisfied that U.S. intervention was not imminent, finally agreed. It took three days of fierce fighting, but the garrison surrendered on May 10, 1911. This decisive victory was a turning point in the revolt against the Diaz government, but initially it almost caused another serious rupture between Madero and his two military commanders, Orozco and Villa. The commander of the federal troops defending Ciudad Juarez, General Juan Navarro, previously ordered the execution of captured rebels by bayonet. Many of these men were commanded by Villa and Orozco, and they demanded that Navarro be executed. Even in his own written declaration of San Luis de Potosí, Madero specifically discussed the execution 
of any federal government official who mistreated captured rebels. But for reasons that still remain unclear, Madero overruled his commanders, even personally telling them to shoot him if they did not agree with his decision to spare the general. This prompted a very visible and emotional apology by especially Villa, and General Navarro was personally conveyed to El Paso, Texas, and safety by Madero himself. This incident was officially concluded, but ultimately was the beginning of Orozco's dissatisfaction with Madero, an attitude that had eventual consequences. The Diaz government was forced to acknowledge that it now faced a significant threat from Madero in northern Mexico, and was also confronted with a separate threat from the south in the form of Emiliano Zapata, a charismatic leader of another army consisting of mostly rural peasants from Mexico's southern states. Diaz himself was over 80 years old and tended to be influenced by a circle of advisors who were mostly concerned with maintaining the privilege and great wealth of the country's upper classes. They also felt that someone from Madero's elite background would be far more reasonable than the likes of Zapata, a revolutionary firebrand intent on fundamental agrarian reform. Immediately after the Battle of Ciudad Juarez, overtures were made to Madero to resume discussions concerning an armistice. Quietly, political aides of Madero traveled to New York City to meet with Diaz's Treasury Secretary and right-hand man, Jose Limantour. Although initially, Limantour attempted to temporarily maintain Diaz's official authority, it was clear that no deal would occur without the aged dictator's resignation. During these discussions, Madero himself was greatly influenced by advisors who were more focused on ridding the country of Diaz and maintaining the social status quo. A compromise was reached in which Diaz would resign, be exiled, a temporary president appointed, and elections quickly held. The treaty also allowed Madero to appoint provisional governors in 14 states, a general amnesty for the rebels, and a formal demobilization of all rebel forces. This latter provision was insisted upon by the military leaders of the National Army who were hostile to any agreement. Via Orozco and another influential rebel politician, Venustiano Carranza, all opposed the armistice for various reasons. Orozco already felt slighted by the authority granted to Carranza, who Madero appointed his minister of war, despite Carranza's lack of any military participation in the rebellion. Villa was opposed to any compromise that did not include some changes to Mexico's social order and left intact much of the Diaz government's fundamental structure, and Carranza also felt that the revolution would eventually have to be resumed against the same elements now agreeing to a compromise. Although Carranza was appointed the governor of the Mexican state of Coahuila, this did little to diffuse his ambition and his belief that Madero's authority was temporary. Francisco Madero was elected president of Mexico in October of 1911, Diaz having left the country for exile in France. But the united hostility that combined many elements of a rebellion against the Porfiriato now focused their antagonism on Madero. For his part, Pancho Villa was relatively inactive during this time period. He was now amnestied from any possible political or criminal prosecution, had a substantial group of armed supporters to ensure his security, 
and looked forward to enjoying a period of relative solitude. Unfortunately, Mexico's political atmosphere remained chaotic. In the South, rebels under the command of Zapata continued to seize territory and property, especially when it was clear that land reform was not imminent. Madero was forced to use the National Army to stabilize the situation and achieve at least a stalemate. In March of 1912, Pascual Orozco, already angered by the minimal appointment he received as the head of the Rurales in the state of Chihuahua, declared his opposition to the Madero government and began an armed revolt. In the ever-fluid Mexican political scene, Orozco was financially supported in Chihuahua by the Terrazas family, who wanted to topple the Madero government. Orozco reached out to Villa to join him. Pancho was not interested, still loyal to Madero. While the federal government organized a response to Orozco, Villa reconstituted his fighting force and engaged in hit-and-run attacks against Orozco's Colorados, known for the red bands around their hats. Madero had no choice but to employ the reactionary general Victoriano Huerta as the head of the column that headed north to Chihuahua to challenge Orozco. He also personally requested that Villa join the general to oppose Orozco, an overture that Villa accepted. In command of 4,800 federales, General Huerta accepted Villa's men into his fighting force strictly out of necessity, considering Villa a glorified bandit. Typically not dressed in a uniform but in ragged civilian clothes, Pancho initially did not make much of an impression. Years later, he wrote of his first interaction with Huerta's general staff. Huerta and his staff officers did not get up from their chairs that morning. I walked into headquarters. I was dusty and tired. All the men there were dressed in gala uniforms. But because I was not in the regular army, I was wearing my usual old clothes. I never forgot the way these men looked me up and down, as if I were a stray mongrel that smelled bad. In fact, this was a realistic assessment of Huerta's attitude in particular. The general had reluctantly agreed to the Diaz armistice and had political ambitions of his own. He also disliked the disorganization that came from within Villa's fighting force, Villa's men frequently violating military protocol by looting haciendas and properties owned by foreign interests. When one of Villa's men, Tomas Mercado, was finally arrested and threatened with execution for such behavior, Villa responded by demanding his immediate release, proclaiming that otherwise he and his group of volunteers would leave the campaign. This time, Huerta relented, but in June, on another pretext, Huerta demanded Villa's arrest and ordered one of his officers to execute Pancho, who Huerta claimed was about to begin his own uprising against the government. This officer, Rubio Navarrete, upon surrounding Villa's command post, decided that Villa, who was currently asleep, was anything but rebellious, and he did not carry out the order. Villa then proceeded to Huerta's headquarters, where he was promptly arrested and his execution ordered by Huerta. But again, Navarrete intervened with Villa literally placed up against a wall before the executioners were ordered by Navarrete to stand down. While historical accounts of this incident contain a great deal of histrionics, and most likely a telegram from Madero actually prevented the execution, Huerta had had enough of Villa and his band of undisciplined rabble. 
he ordered Villa to be sent by escort to Mexico City, where he was supposed to be imprisoned for theft and rebellion. His unit was folded into the National Army. Villa was lucky to survive the trip to the capital when Huerta attempting to get several garrison commanders to execute Villa on the way south. Luckily, they consulted with the Madero government, who told him to ignore any such order and to convey the prisoner to Mexico City. Unaware of any of Huerta's machinations, Villa arrived in the capital optimistic that Madero would intercede and release him from custody. But Villa had a much more powerful and hostile entity to contend with, the U.S. ambassador, Henry Lane Wilson. Wilson confronted Madero personally and demanded that Villa be jailed and tried by a court-martial for his attacks on American-owned business interests and haciendas in northern Mexico. When Madero repeatedly refused, Wilson then threatened the armed intervention of the U.S. government to protect American interests, a de facto invasion, and during the administration of President Taft, a predictable outcome should Madero refuse. In addition, General Huerta knew that he had earned the perpetual enmity of Villa and definitely wanted to keep him behind bars. Madero was content to sacrifice Villa for for his own, as it turned out, temporary political ends. Francisco languished in jail for seven months, although while in custody he was taught how to read and write by another prisoner, Gildardo Magana, an individual associated with Emiliano Zapata. Throughout his incarceration, he sent several letters directly to Madero that were unanswered or deflected. Villa realized that his only short-term option for freedom was to attempt to escape, highly unlikely, from Bellum Prison, his place of incarceration. He was able to successfully petition Madero for a transfer to the military prison at Santiago Tatelolco. Once there, he built a relationship with a mid-level employee who facilitated his escape on Christmas Day, 1912. Villa was driven to the town of Toluca, boarded a train to the coastal town of Manzanillo, and got on a ship that took him to Mazatlan, then entering the U.S. at Nogales before reaching El Paso in early 1913. It was from El Paso that Villa frequently communicated by letter with both President Madero and Abraham Gonzalez, his former mentor and now governor of Chihuahua. The gist of this communication was that despite his mistreatment, he was still loyal to Madero and who also warned both men of an imminent plot to seize government control by reactionary elites. He requested that Madero officially exonerate him, a request that Madero was inclined to grant until external events forced another violent and unexpected swerve in Mexican politics. On February 9, 1913, military cadets and a small detachment of federal troops attempted to seize the National Palace in Mexico City and remove the Madero government. Initially, this attempt was repelled by forces at the palace, and it appeared that the revolt would fail. But, encouraged by the American Ambassador Wilson and the full knowledge of the Taft administration, General Victoriano Huerta, marginalized into retirement by Madero, hatched his own scheme to arrest Madero and seize power. After reaching agreement with members of the army, Huerta had President Madero and Vice President José Pino Suárez arrested and initially gave them the option of exile if they agreed to resign. 
While detained and in an incident that is historically murky, they were both executed by individuals loyal to Huerta and with the full knowledge of the American ambassador. Officially, the major in charge of transporting the two deposed leaders claimed that his automobile convoy was attacked by supporters of Madero and that the two men were shot while trying to escape. Through governmental machinations, Huerta was named the temporary president until subsequent elections could be organized, and he promised an official inquiry into the Madero assassination. But the inquiry never occurred, and no one was ever held officially responsible for this shocking incident. In Mexican history, the entire affair is referred to as, quote, the 10 tragic days, unquote. Within a month, Madero ally and governor of Chihuahua, Abraham Gonzalez, perceived by Huerta as Madero's political heir, was forced by federal troops to resign. After he was arrested, he was placed on a train bound for Mexico City. On the specific orders of Huerta, once the train reached a remote area along the route, Gonzalez was hauled off and executed. Subsequently, much of the Mexican establishment accepted Huerta as the new head of the Mexican government. But there were some exceptions. The most notable was the governor of Coahuila, Venustiano Carranza, who officially proclaimed his opposition to the Huerta regime. Initially, this resistance went poorly, with federal troops managing to defeat Carranza's militia in three battles, forcing the governor to flee to nearby Sonora, area still controlled by entities also opposed to Huerta. In Chihuahua, the appointment of General Antonio Rabago, a Huerta supporter and considered the architect of Abraham Gonzalez's assassination, as governor of the state prompted outrage from former supporters of Madero and opponents of the federal government. In El Paso, Pancho Villa was also angered by Huerta's behavior and vowed revenge, but he was broke, lacked any viable fighting force, and seemed powerless to impact the current political situation. But after receiving both a 1,000 peso loan personally from the governor of Sonora, Jose Maitorena, and encouragement to return to Chihuahua, Villa assembled a tiny group of men and horses and crossed the Rio Grande back into Mexico on March 6, 1913. Governor Maitorena did not want Villa involved militarily in Sonora, understanding that the populace-minded rebel would focus on land redistribution as the main goal of any rebellion. Best to let Pancho wreak havoc in Chihuahua. Although it took several months after his return, Villa gradually consolidated control of the anti-government effort in this particular state. He did this through gestures meant to endear him to the peasant population, occupying large haciendas, executing the overseers who brutally exploited the laborers on these estates and distributing grain and food to the less economically fortunate. In the strange world of Mexican politics, Pascual Orozco came to an agreement with the Huerta regime and became the federal government's most effective adversary against Villa and other northern Mexican entities hostile to Huerta. Like Villa, Orozco's Colorados were prone to looting and violence against the local population and soon were labeled as bandits. Villa, with a disciplined, well-trained fighting force of approximately 700 men, became the respectable adversary to this unstable and dangerous entity. 
On an international basis, the newly installed Wilson administration, appalled by the violence aided and abetted by its predecessor, refused to officially recognize the Huerta government and began to ignore the official American embargo on weapons sales to Mexican nationals. Despite Pancho Villa's ability after his return to the U.S. to quickly assemble a viable fighting unit, much of the resistance in Chihuahua was still the result of several disparate entities loyal to various other individuals. In the summer of 1913, the national government sent additional federal troops to coordinate with Orozco, hoping to individually eradicate these lesser adversaries. It was clear to Carranza that the opposition needed to unite under one commander, and while Villa was not his personal choice, most of the other rebel leaders felt otherwise. Those who didn't were quickly personally persuaded by Villa, who, heavily armed, with intimidating dark eyes and a reputation for violence, could be very persuasive. His newly reorganized unit was named División del Norte, the Division of the North, and totaled over 8,000 men. For his first military objective, Villa chose the strategic city of Torreón, a critical link that controlled rail access north into Chihuahua. Villa hoped to cut off federal forces in that region, but to also unite with other revolutionary factions in the western state of Durango, a seemingly ambitious objective for a typically disorganized rabble, Villa was able to impose discipline, executing reluctant or argumentative subordinates on the spot. His determined attack on Torreon's garrison compensated for lack of artillery with around-the-clock assaults that continued after sunset. Not only were the disinterested conscript federales intent on quickly fleeing the battlefield no match, but the garrison commander, eventually court-martialed for cowardice, fled the city in an automobile. Even more impressive was Villa's ability to control his occupying army's penchant for indiscriminate looting and theft from the local population. Sentries were placed in front of businesses with orders to shoot any intruder. Villa was playing a long game with this concept, wanting to instill and maintain a strict discipline within his own unit, but to impress the city's fearful residents and foreign consulate entities that he was a force for stability and protection. That is not to say that Villa ever hesitated to deal with captured federal soldiers in a brutal, deliberately vindictive manner, a response to the Huerta practice of summarily executing all captive revolutionaries. Pancho Villa is notorious for publicly lining up three unfortunates in a row and fatally firing a single bullet through the heads of all three. But unlike the vindictive Huerta government, even here Villa behaved strategically, giving forcibly conscripted soldiers the option to join his army. Villa's capture of Torreón was a major victory that also provided much-needed artillery. In exchange for their town being spared from indiscriminate looting and destruction, the rebel commander also persuaded the town's wealthier citizens to provide a loan of three million pesos. Weapons, confidence, and money quickly transformed the División del Norte from a shadowy guerrilla swarm into a legitimate army. Initially bogged down at his next objective, Chihuahua's heavily fortified capital city, Villa used subterfuge to head north by sea's train, convincing the garrison commanders at Ciudad Juarez that he was a normally scheduled coal delivery. 
He held a gun to the head of every local wire operator, forcing them to allow his own telegraph operator to send a message informing Ciudad Juarez that the train would arrive on schedule. When it did arrive, loaded with 2,000 viistas, the town was captured without a single casualty. While this caper did gain via international fame, his continued indiscriminate slaughter of captured officers was received with shock and dismay. Previously, Villa and Orozco's capture of Ciudad Juarez was the victory that forced the Diaz government to reconsider its viability. Huerta did not possess the same mindset and presumed sending more federal troops into the field would enable the government to recapture Torreon and reassert control over the state of Chihuahua. Fully expecting such an expedition, Villa chose to precipitate a battle 35 miles south of Ciudad Juarez near the railroad depot at Tierra Blanca. What resulted was a two-day pitched battle that was decided when Villa's cavalry was able to encircle the less mobile federales and tactics such as sending a locomotive and train cars stuffed with dynamite down the tracks into federal lines, the subsequent spectacular explosion prompting panic and a rout. 5,000 federales were killed, 600 were wounded. Not only did this victory repel what was supposed to be the destruction of Villa and a restoration of Huerta authority, it prompted the hasty retreat of government forces from Chihuahua City itself all the way to the eastern Chihuahua border town of Ojinaga, the Creole Terrassa clan joining the withdrawal. On December 1, 1913, Pancho Villa's troops and eventually their commander entered the capital city of Chihuahua via the de facto ruler of the state. They were greeted by thousands of residents lining the streets to provide a tumultuous welcome, via addressing the crowd from a balcony overlooking the townspeople. He assured them that he meant no harm and that the 200 soldiers who remained to keep order were free to leave. Viva Villa! Viva la Revolucion! was the enthusiastic response. For the former illiterate and illegitimate son of sharecroppers, this was a heady moment, but it did not come without many underlying circumstances that challenged any authority figure attempting to govern such a disparate population. Many of his soldiers were expecting some material acknowledgement of their role in Villa's success. Symbolic, if nothing else, Pancho formed what was known as the Dorados, the Golden Ones, three squads, each with 100 men, dressed in olive fatigues with gold insignia, Stetsons, and heavily armed with pistols, a rifle, and the best horses in Villa's cavalry. Villa was aided in this process by agreeing, in January of 1914, to a paid contract with the Mutual Film Corporation to allow the studio to film Pancho and his soldiers in action. Understanding that administration might not be his strong suit, Pancho Villa looked to the local citizenry to appoint someone to public office that was more suited to the mundane business of running a government. He decided upon Silvestre Terrazas, the owner and publisher of Chihuahua's most high-profile newspaper. Although a distant cousin of Don Luis Terrazas, Silvestre was a populist who opposed Enrique Creel when Creel served as governor of Chihuahua. Terrazas also supported Francisco Madero in the initial conflict against the Diaz government, a perspective that earned him time behind bars. 
The newspaper man was initially stunned at his appointment, especially when Villa attempted to appoint him as the actual governor of the state. Tarasas had no military background and knew that he could never get Villa's various army commanders and soldiers to accept his authority. Instead, he agreed to work with Villa to institute suitable social reforms. Within weeks, the two co-authored a proclamation ordering the forfeiture of haciendas, the owners most likely having already fled north. Always wary of instigating any U.S. intervention, Villa was careful to exclude any foreign-owned properties, with the exception of Chinese and Spanish possessions, the former ethnic group the butt of extreme racist hostility throughout Mexico, the latter seen as the legacy of imperialist invaders and supporters of Diaz and Huerta. Like Madero, Villa promised to eventually redistribute land to the peasantry, but for the moment, these businesses generated the income to fund and equip Villa's vast army. Although these promises had been made to the lower class before, this time they were accepted, the public believing that Villa was one of their own. Villa did immediately lower the cost of meat, especially by seizing cattle and distributing it at a rock-bottom price. This was the first time that any government in Mexican history had ever provided the lower class with anything substantive, and Pancho Villa's popularity skyrocketed as a result. Thank you for listening to part one of this podcast about Pancho Villa. Much of the information for this podcast came from the book, The Life and Times of Pancho Villa by Friedrich Katz and Villa, Soldier of the Mexican Revolution by Robert Shana. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com as well as information about my new novel, Is That Your Final Answer? If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Also rate us on iTunes, and if you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website. ¶¶